Okay, so I would like to summarize briefly our understanding of the marshal and the corresponding nimshal. And because it's a summary, I'm not taking any questions. It's just we all kind of get right on the same page. Right. There are four elements of the nair, of the candle or lamp. One is the wick. The second is the dark fire, which is burning the wick. Um, the third is the white fire, which illuminates and hovers over the dark fire. And then you have the oil. Okay. And the oil facilitates both types of fire. Inasmuch as the oil flows through the wick nicely, it, it prevents the wick from burning and thus prolongs the wick's burning, allowing the dark fire to, to, to stably grab hold of the wick. The, the purity of the oil means that the dark fire actually produces the white fire, which provides illumination. Okay, so we find both ideas of the fire are implicit or being facilitated by the oil. Okay, now, what is this in the Nimshul corollary? We have the wick. The wick represents the human being, or the language is the body, or sometimes body, animal, soul, depending on how you want to say it. And the dark, and the, the dark fire is the soul overcoming the natural human tendencies. Natural human tendencies are away from God, and the soul is supposed to, just like the dark fire burns, it's supposed to um, take hold of them and transform those to being focused on God so that the intellect becomes a means of recognizing God. The emotions become the way that we um, feel towards God. And that means that the godly soul is investing itself and engaging with the, with the human being. And just like the fire, that can only happen with the presence of chachma, which serves as the oil. That because of the antagonism between the body um, and the godly soul, or between the human being and the godly soul, you need this thing to facilitate that, just like the oil needs to be suffused throughout the wick. And that's this idea that there is a, there is a bittel, there is a sense of being taken with or being captivated by godliness. And in this sense, because it's, because it's, it's enabling and it's manifesting in how the person is going to bring that godly awareness into the human psyche, right? There's a sense of, uh, there's a sense of bittersweetness, there's a sense of brokenness that there's being captivated by God, but the sense that there's these other parts of ourselves that are getting in the way. And then as that gets developed cognitively and emotionally, that's the dark fire. And then if that oil, that chachmah, is pure enough that it rises to a higher level, and that's how there's, there's the illuminating white light, the white part of the fire, and that's um, a sense of being captivated by God that's absolute and total. Um, and so everything other than God kind of melts out of the psyche, and that's kind of a more um, transcendent, blissful awareness of God. Okay. And in order for that to be present, it needs to reside upon the dark fire. So you need both, both elements of Chachmah. Okay. Now, that's the summary. Now we're going to start Dalet, the fourth chapter. To understand this, with greater explanation, we need to preface what is known, 
there are two types of contemplation. Okay. Now, I'm going to finish the paragraph and then I want you to think for a moment if the paragraph makes sense. Okay? Ha'alef, the first type, is the, is the lower unity. Which is the same idea as how God fills all of the worlds. Which is the idea contained in the part of our prayers where we say the phrase, Baruch Hashem, blessed is the name of the glory of his kingship forever and ever. as is known. Which is also corresponding to the divine name, Elohim. Okay, so we have several things that are lined up here. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually read two paragraphs and then, you can, and then I'll ask you if it makes sense. So there's this idea of the lower unity, which is also the idea that God fills the world, which is also the part of davening called Baruch Shem Kvayim Machus, it's a phrase we say in davening, which is also associated with the divine name Elohim. Okay. I'm gonna skip the parentheses for right now. Actually, no, I won't. This is the lower fire in the individual soul. That's the dark fire. So we have a few things that are associated, right? Lower unity, God fills the worlds, Baruch Shem, Divine Nim Elohim, and what we previously in the analogy called the lower, the dark fire. Vabez, the second. is the upper unity. Which is the idea of how God surrounds the world, B'Shem Havaya, which is associated with the name Havaya, Shu Inyan Shema Yisrael, which related to the part of davening where we say Shema Yisrael, Hu B'Chin is Nur it's the upper fire, Shnikr Nur Chivra, which is the white fire, Erzurah L'Tzadik Elyon, which is the light that's implanted for the supernal Tzadik. Okay, so we have two sets. Lower unity, upper unity, in divine names, Elohim versus Havaya, in God's relationship with reality, filling reality versus surrounding reality, in the fire of the soul, the dark fire versus the white fire. Good? Okay. What's, what about this paragraph may not make sense? It might make sense to you, but maybe there's something that doesn't make sense to you if you think about it. I mean, all he did is just say there's two types of contemplation and give you a list of terms I get the the Mamale and Soga Kolomen, we've talked about it, mm-hmm. but I don't, there wasn't really a connection to me between contemplation and those terms. Okay. And I get, I can get how one of them is the, the darker radiance one's the lighter one. Okay. But well, what do you mean that you don't get how, how the contemplation relates? Like, is it saying that by contemplating those things or those levels, like, that is the... Does that mean that if you're, if you're like on the level of the dark radiance, you're only contemplating the molecule on it? Okay. Is that it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of... The lower one is the subject of God's oneness as to spiritual man's perspective. We're going to get to that. I, I, I take no responsibility for notes. Okay. Yeah, and the second one is the subject of God's one is us oh, from God's perspective. Never mind. I, don't have a question I take no responsibility for those notes. <laughs> I 
might be my um my like my wrong perception of your of and meaning of Russian famous is, but for me, um Russian people like oh but it makes sense. Like it's the most hidden part of the Shema and the Shema is more like it's a much more revealed part. Like I don't know if it makes sense. But here it's the other way around. Yeah, but I think that was asked in questions and answers, and I explained that. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, here's the, here's the thing that I was hoping someone would ask. Sorry. It says, it starts off like that there's two types of what? Contemplation. Does he talk about two different types of contemplation? No, no what does he talk about? No, two different types of contemplation. God. No, there's not two different types of God. There's one type of God. No, like, 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 there's levels of God. As God relates to yeah. the world. Yeah. The way, how you can think about God's oneness? So there... They're, but put it back in contemplation. They're two different what of contemplation. They're not types of contemplation. They're two different subjects of contemplation. Yeah. Right. In other words, if he had said that one can contemplate on two topics and said one is the lower unity, which is the idea of Malakam, which is the idea of Baruch Shein, which is, that would have like made perfect sense, right? In other words, I could contemplate on this topic or I could contemplate on that topic. But he doesn't say. He says there are two types of contemplation. So what does that indicate to us? Well, you didn't get to anything. I, I, what I, in other words, what I, what I want you to do, what I, what I want you to do is, I, I want you to move your headspace into a similar space that the Mithlerab is in. If you read this, your headspace is, oh, okay, I can contemplate this topic. I can contemplate that topic. That's not really where he's get, where he's getting at. Contemplation is an action, in the sense that it's something one does. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a mental activity, right? Mm-hmm. Are all mental activities the same? No. No, okay. Now, let's take physical activities. Um, swimming, right? Are, is there more than one way to swim? Different strokes. Right, okay. And they have different features to them, right? And if you use the wrong kind of method for swimming at the wrong context, so for instance, um, cert- I'm not a swimmer, but certain swimming right, allows you to swim very fast, and certain kinds of swimming don't allow you to swim as fast, but allow you to swim for longer distances. So depending on where you would like to swim, right, what your goal is, the right type of swimming would be appropriate, right? It doesn't change You're still swimming, right? But when you can subdivide, there are different kinds of swimming that bring to different results. So now, are we, is, is he saying that there's, you can contemplate on this and you can contemplate on that. It's like a smorgasbord, you pick which one you want. Or the way you contemplate this topic, the way you do the activity of contemplation with regard to the lower unity is actually a different mental activity than the contemplation on the upper unity. I think it's different. That's what he's saying, it is different. In other words, if you were to try and this is what I want you to appreciate. If you were to try to contemplate the upper unity mm-hmm. using the mental, for lack of words, techniques that you do for the lower unity, you would just end up falling back to the lower unity and just mislabeling things. Mm-hmm. In other words, the subject matter and the method of contemplation are inter- intimately tied up with each other. In a way that, again, the results of your swimming, distance um, versus speed, it is intimately tied up with the method of which you use to swim. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So in other words, there are three things that go together. The way I contemplate, the subject I contemplate on, and, the, and how it brings me to a awareness and experience of God are all linked. So now let's take what we learned previously. What did we learn about the dark fire and the white fire? What's their relationship between them? Should you leave out the oil for a second? The dark fire and the white fire. You can't have one without the other. Which way does it work? You can't have the light without the dark. But you can have the? You can have the dark without the light. So then what does that mean? If I decide I'm going to go there contemplate be, God. There can be a lower law, lower unity, but without the I can only contemplate the lower unity. Oh, interesting. And if I am successful in that endeavor. There might be a. And I have the requisite oil then that can then progress into the contemplation of the higher unity. Okay? I don't want to go into right now with the, with the oils. Okay, so in the back, we're going to learn the text, but in the back of your mind, what I want you to realize is that there's a, there's a very big difference in these two types of contemplation. Now, actually, I, I want to develop it a little bit more, and then we'll, we'll go into the text. I, I don't remember if I spoke about this last week. And if I did, great. Um, and I apologize for going over it again. And if I didn't, um, well then, great, and I'm going over it now. Why do you need a godly soul for Hasidus to work? Chassidus teaches, Chabad Chassidus at the very least, teaches that one c- contemplates God and that contemplation causes one to have strong feelings towards God. You know, love, fear, whatever the case may be. So why do I need a godly soul? I just need to be a human being. Human beings can contemplate, right? It is not the case that my ability to contemplate things is fundamentally different, seemingly. Okay, but I can choose to contemplate whatever I want. And if, you know, a non-Jew can also do so. How, how are you taught that? How are you... Right, like your natural instinct as a child is not to contemplate God. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I mean, there's lots of, you know, deep spiritual people who are non-Jews as well. That's also the case. So the idea is that there's a very big difference between contemplating something and where you're engaging with the idea of the thing versus contemplating something where you're engaging with the thing itself. And if the contemplation is meant that it should actually affect you, then the subject matter has to resonate with you. If you don't have a godly soul and you contemplate godliness, it will not touch you. It will resonate with your, in, with your intellectual curiosity to the degree that that's something that you enjoy doing. Right? The, the, the fun and enjoyment of getting concepts to fit together will, will, will be appealing. But that's where it will end. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. I think we spoke about this last week. I don't remember if we did. But okay. So now, can I contemplate the upper unity without the lower unity? Absolutely. You just won't fully get it. Right, but I'll be contemplating the upper unity more or less. It's not 100% true what I'm saying, but I'm going to go to the extreme for the purpose right now. More or less as if I was a Gentile with no godly soul. In other words, I would be being a theologian, engaging the ideas academically. I wouldn't really, wouldn't be resonating. What makes it that as a human being, I am at a place where the contemplation of the upper unity 
has that type of resonance that can actually bring a person to this new state of awareness of God is because they're already in what state? Go back to the analogy of the flame. They're like the wick with the dark fire. No dark fire. No white fire. So what makes the kind of, because we're talking about a contemplation where not the idea captivates you, not the idea touches you, but the reality touches you and therefore affects you and how you live your life fundamentally. You cannot, the kind of contemplation that allows you to get to that kind of an awareness of the upper unity, whatever that is, it's not enough to merely have a godly soul. You already need a godly soul which has taken hold of the animal soul the way the dark flame is burning stably on the wick. And then you can move to that kind of contemplation. Does that make sense? To the kind of contemplation that changes your reality. Well, both of them change. You need to change reality in two stages. First, you need to change reality where the godly soul is burning the animal soul, like the dark fire burning the wick, which again requires oil for that to be stable. And then and only then do you have the ability to contemplate the upper unity in a way that you're actually contemplating the upper unity, in a way that the contemplation is on the upper unity itself rather than the idea of the upper unity. Okay, so it really is two different kinds of contemplation, different kinds of mental activities. And you know, just like we understand with maturity, there are certain things you cannot do before you hit previous stages. I, I just you know, a, a psychological example, which is which should be relatively easy to understand. Um, you cannot take responsibility for others um, if you have no sense of personal responsibility for yourself, right? The little famous expression, the Mishnah, im ainli mili, if I'm not going to be for me, who's going to be for me? Bimani lats bimani, but if I'm only for myself, then, then what am I, right? So it is... You know, to the degree to which a person has a kind of personal responsibility, self-agency, is the degree to which they can be responsible to others. Right? One can't graduate from one to the other. Right? So you can't run before you walk. Kind of idea. Okay, good. Let's learn the ideas now. Ubir Inyan. Let's explain the idea. Page 51. It's known and explained in another place. Regarding the verse, this is from Asher and Davening. I will exalt you, my God, the King. This is a reference to Malchus of Atzilus, which is the source of all the worlds. Please tell me what Malchus of Atzilus is. Please tell me what Malchus of Atzilus is. Very good. Now, I'm going to give you a trick to learning Chassidus, okay? To make your life much easier. Any Kabbalistic term, you never translate. Ever. 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 I'll give you an example. An analogy. London is the capital of England while simultaneously serving as the capital of Great Britain. That's a perfectly coherent sentence, yes? Mm-hmm. Now, what's the translation of the word London? Nothing. That's right. What's the translation of the word England? Mm-hmm. What's the translation of the words Great Britain? Nothing. Nothing. Right, those are names of places, right? Mm-hmm. right? They refer to actual entities. Mm-hmm. 
But the sentence is meaningful because it's describing the relationship between them, right? Mm-hmm. Right, the political relationship that London, right, serves as the capital of some kind of political entity known as England and also as the political entity known as Great Britain. <clears throat> now, if I don't know anything more than that, I still know quite a bit, right? And one would assume that England and Great Britain are not synonymous, otherwise that sentence would be kind of silly, right? So either one is subsumed in the other or they overlap in some way, or you know, maybe there's some interesting political reality we haven't thought of where they're disjointed, although that's hard to imagine how capitals could not be in the, the places that they're capitals of, but whatever, right? But notice I, I can really ponder the sentence, the meaning of the sentence, try to fathom the sentence saying I never need to come to understand what the words London, England, and Great Britain mean. Okay. So there's something called Atsilas. In Atsilas, there's something called Malchus of Atsilas. Okay. What do I know about Malchus of Atsilas? Source of all the worlds. Okay. By the way, if you get enough sentences about London, what do you start to eventually get? You really get what London, to get what London is. You would have to go to London. But if you if you get enough sentences about London, what would you eventually get? You get an idea of London. You get a sense of London, right? But you would never act to know what London actually is. You would have to experience it, right? So if you would like to know what Malchus of Atzilus is, you would have to experience for yourself. That's right. That's so easy. No. There's a famous story. The Maggid of Mizrich had a disciple. No, had, sorry, had a, had a, had a chavrus, had a colleague. Um, and they both were big Torah scholars. Um, and they both prayed using Kabbalistic um, formulas and, and contemplations and meditative techniques. Um, and the Magad Mizrich was originally not a chassid. He was actually quite antagonistic to the Baal Shem Tov. Um, and eventually, later in life, he became a chassid. And eventually, a, a rebbe in his own right, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. So later, after he became a chassid, his, his former chavrusa saw him davening at great length. And he said, why are you davening at great length? He says, well, I have, you know, there's all the deep Kabbalistic spiritual meaning of the prayers. And he says, yeah, I know. I mean, I also do that. We've been doing that for years. It doesn't take that long to think through all the things. And so the Magid says, how do you make a living? He says, what do you mean, how do I make a living? You know I make a living. I sit and learn all day. My wife runs a store. And once a year, I go to Leipzig, Germany, and I buy all the merchandise. And my wife sells it throughout the year. We make a living. And I said, learn. That's how that works. He says, well, I, mean, I don't understand. It takes you two weeks to travel to Leipzig, two weeks to be at the fair, two weeks back, six weeks. You're missing a lot of Torah study. You know, why don't you just like, you've been there a few times. Why don't you just like close your eyes and imagine yourself getting on the wagon and traveling to Leipzig and buying the merchandise and coming back and the whole, you know, whole thing would take like an hour or so. <laughs> the man looks at him and says, yeah, but I don't have any actually merchandise. I need to go to Leipzig to get the merchandise. And so the, and that takes time. And so the Magad says, yeah, and I have to actually go to these spiritual worlds and get the merchandise. And that takes time. <laughs> Hence, back I was saying about the contemplation. You have to actually, mm-hmm. if you would like to know what these things are, you have to experience them for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the means to do that is, you know, starts with contemplation. And at some point, contemplation goes far beyond what, you know, many of us would think of contemplation is because we tend to think of it just more like abstract academically. But okay. So... Um, so, I don't know what Malchus of Atzilus is. I know there's something called Atzilus. In Matzilus, there's something called the Malchus of Atzilus. I don't know what Malchus is, but it's the source of all the worlds. Shinikri B'Shem Elokim. Dafka. And this is um, known by the divine name Elokim. Okay. 
So now, here's an important thing to know. Why in Hasidus, and in Kabbalah for that matter, do we care about this place called Atzilus? I don't know if you ever noticed this, but you learn a lot of Hasidus. Atzilus gets talked about a lot, and like other worlds, not as much. Why would we care a lot about the world of Atzilus, wherever this Atzilus place is? And obviously, what? It obviously affects us a lot. So does the world of Yetzirah, for that matter. The world of Asiya also does. Well, it's the one closer to the It's the one closer to the source of God. God doesn't have a source. Well, but it's the one, there's Ainsoth and then there's Atsilos. Right, okay. So Atsilos is the place where God makes himself known. If you would like to go have coffee with God, you can't go to the world of Yetzirah. You won't meet God there. If you want to meet God, where do you have to go? Atilus. So that's something, right? It's like it, what? That's what we care about, yeah. Um, everything, by the way, can be explained simply. And, and simply is important before you get to the complicated. So Atilus is a place. And it's a place where God makes himself known. Bria is also a world. God doesn't really make himself known in Bria. That's a, you know. And, and same thing with Yitzira, and same thing with Asiya, and this world, forget about it. <laughs> Try meeting God in this world. Very difficult. Okay. Now, here's the thing. The notion of divine names straddles two very important points. On the one hand, every name refers to God. Okay, this is one of the reasons why the Balshantov said you should not study Kabbalah. Okay. Who here has studied some Hasidus and is willing to be publicly embarrassed? Okay. Can you please tell me what Elohim means? It's one of the names of God. Yeah, but just tell me what it means. It means God. Good. Okay, but see now, if I had done this without giving you that preface, what would you have said? Probably said the same thing. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. I'm impressed. Do you have the right answer? Many people say things, oh, Elohim, mean, Elohim means like nature. Elohim means gavura or strength or judgment. No, no, no. Elohim means God. What does Havaya mean? God. Eloka. Kale. There are a bunch of names for God, right? They just mean God. So now you have the question, well, why do you have different names? Because if he's revealing himself, he can, he, can become, he can be known in different ways. After all, the way you know me is not the way my wife knows me. It's not the way my children know me. It's not the way my father knows me, right? So even though it is me who is known, there are different ways in which I am known, right? So if Atzilus is a place where God makes himself known, he can be known in, in different ways, right? So when we want to talk about him as he is known, we use different names. What if we want to talk about him, just himself, not as he is known? So the Zohar says that, that regarding himself, um, or is alluded to in the Ten Commandments, where it says, There's no name, no illusion. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing that can refer to him himself. Because once there's something that refers to him, it's him as he is making himself known. No. So the names of God are God as he makes himself. No, and it seals is the place. the same thing for us. It's just yeah, that's the really only reason we have a name is so other people can call us. Yeah, right. Like, if I want to refer to myself, I just use the first person pronoun I. Right. So if God is talking about himself, he just says I. Right. 
The only reason why he needs names is because there are ways in which he is known. Now, if Atzilus is the place where he... There's no way to fully know yourself either. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So if Atzilus is the place where God makes himself known, right, then everything in Atzilus is associated with a divine name because the divine names are he as he makes himself. No. No. Good. So now, how does God, when God makes himself known in Malchus of Atzilus, say, how is he known in Malchus of Atzilus? He's known as? Elohim. Now, why is he known as Elohim? Elohim power and That's right. Elohim conveys, the word Elohim in Hebrew is a word that conveys the meaning of power and, what do they use here? Spiritual force. Why do they stick, they stuck the word spiritual there? No, okay. Power, that's good. Power and mastery. Kmei ve'ele ha'aretz. Those are the, the, the strong ones of the earth, ones that have power. Until the judges, which means refers to the judges. Okay, so now, what does that mean? What is power? What is power? Just very simply, before we make it complicated. What's power? The ability to do something. It has the ability to do something. You can make other things be different than they are. There's an expression in Hebrew that my children have adopted that I cannot stand. It drives me nuts, which is Ein Koch. Yeah. Okay. Um, it literally means I have no power. It means I have no power. Like, you're lazy. I can't make it. I can't get things done. Okay, well, and you're going to have a miserable life then. <laughs> right? So, kayach means there's something that you possess that allows you to cause things to be different. Right? If you're doing something, it's because you have koach. If you've accomplished something, it's because you have koach. Okay? So, what does that mean? How is God known in Malchus of Atzilus? If you were to meet God up, meet, meet up with God in Malchus of Atzilus, you would see God as a what? A doer. A doer. A doer of things. An accomplisher, right? Very well accomplished, right? Okay, now it also conveys another word, which is adnos. Right? What does adnos mean? Mastery. Mastery. What is mastery? Power over something? Well, how is that different than power? Usually over someone is master. What? Or when you master something, when you like... No, no, no. It's because he gives you an example of a judge. No, the example is a judge, a judge. Like that you have... I mean, the word mastery, I don't really like because it's confusing. Like to be a master over. Yeah, it it means authority is a better way. Yeah. In other words, like this. I can can get things done because I have the power or I can get things done because I have... Authority, what's the difference? You have the power to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And you have authority to make other people do it for you. Mm-hmm. Authority means others do things because of me. Right? And, and there's, a, there's a, not that I'm making them do it. I mean, just by the way, this is a general rule about all human dynamics. If you have to use 
force, bribes, coercion, etc. What does that say? You're lacking an authority, right? You're, I wouldn't say you don't have any at all, right? Okay? So those are different but related. Yeah, God has both. Okay. But we're, we're grouping them together. Right, so I'm saying God has both. He has the power to do things as well as the authority to make us do things. No, no we're grouping them together. They're one thing. Basically. In what sense are those one thing? What's the commonality? Something will, power and something will get done, right? It's about, right, something will get done. If you have the power, right, the power means that you make things happen, right? If you have authority, it means others do things because of you, right? In other words, both of them cash out in something happening, something changing, something occurring, right? It doesn't make sense to speak of power or authority and then nothing happen, Right? These are, these are, these are um, unified or one above when we talk about the living God, and King of the world. This is the quality of the divine power and light which brings all things into being ex nihilo. In other words, when we are talking about God as the one who brings things into being, he is powerful, yes? Right? He has, an, he has a certain kind of an authority, yes? Right? right? And that only makes sense in as much as things actually come into being. So if I want to fully appreciate God as Baal Koyach, someone who has power, right? Someone with Adnos, someone with authority, where do I need to look for that? Everywhere, his Where do I need to look for it? I need to look at him? Or in yourself. I look at him? No. I look outside of him. Yeah. Do you see? Stop and ponder that. If I want to see how powerful you are, how much authority you have, where do I look? At the other, at the outside. What? At what you bring about. About the influence you have over others. I don't look at you. I can't see that if I look at you. Right? One second. This is known as the divine power. Okay, this is actually a hard thing to translate. I'm going to give you a grammar lesson, okay? It's, just, it's easier with the grammar than because the grammar in the Hebrew is beautiful and in English it's annoying. Okay? Um, you're familiar that the, 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 the core grammatical structure in Hebrew is the verb, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's the, there's the word payel. Payel means the doer. A pu'ula. What is a pu'ula? It's a doing. It's something. Yeah. We had the previous word hispilos, if you recall, that was translated as ecstasy. And it's just to be moved. Something, and then hispilos is where something has been done to you. You've been affected, in other words. Nifal means... Nifal? No, nifal, nifal is the opposite of pile. So if pile is the doer, the nifal is... The did. The did, the did, that which was done. If pile means to act on, nifal means to be acted upon. It's active verb versus passive verb. Okay? Um, should I be politically correct? 
my tendency to do that anyway, yes? In Jewish, in Jewish law, okay, there's something called marriage. Yeah? Yes. The verb that's used in mar- for marriage is different for a man and a woman. Why? It's a different verb. It's the same root, but different word. There's a doer, right? There's a doer, and there's a who it was done to. What does it mean to get married? So the man does what? Marries the woman. And the woman was married to the man, right? And there's actually, if you look in the Hebrew grammar, there's, a, there's, there's actually a whole mission in Ksubis where there's a whole discussion about whether you can which verb they use teaches us halachas or doesn't teach us halachas about certain issues, about who has certain rights and obligations. I don't want to get into it, but okay. And by the way, the same thing is true with divorce. Mm-hmm. Right? What is yeah. the Hebrew word for divorce? Like get. get is the bill of divorce. No, but you were given to get the, the, Right, so the, bi- the, the biblical word for divorce is shalach. And the, 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 the word that's used by the rabbis is... Um, um, Lagarish. So shalach means to send and Lagarish means to cast out. So who is sending who away? Right, that's, okay. So, but, and the thing is, every single thing, every single pula, every single thing that occurs, there is a pile and there is a nifal. There is a doer and there is what it was done to. Right? So there's who said it versus what was said. Right? He threw the ball, the ball was thrown. Good? So let's take that. He threw the ball, the he who throws the ball is the payo, and the ball being thrown, the ball, sorry, the ball which is thrown is the niffle. Now here's the thing. If you throw a ball and the ball is flying, why is the ball still flying? Because of your force. So there's something of you, the doer, present in, that's called kayachapayo, Binifa, the power of the doer in the thing that was acted on or something like that. Okay? And so if God is the doer, then, then, right, then, and, and the thing that he does is create us, right? Then there's something of his power to do present in us. And that, what, do you, what, what is that? Read the paragraph again. From the beginning. What is the thing that is within us? Malchus of Atzilus, right? God is known as Elohim and Malchus of Atzilus. Malchus is the source of the world. And that is, right, that if God is a doer, then the power of his doing is somehow present in the thing that was done. What was done? We were. We were done. We were created ex nihilo, right? So what happens if Malchus of Atzilus were to disappear? We would disappear. Does that mean we are Malchus of Atzilus? No. No. (laughs) Malchus of Atzilus is the, the, whatever power or authority God possesses that actually is the thing making us be what we are. Just like the power of the thrower is what keeps the stone, the ball flying. 
So again, if you want to see how powerful someone is at, at throwing a baseball, where do you look? The ball, where it was at the ball, not at them. Mm-hmm. This is also why he's called the God of Gods, which is a weird thing to say. Meaning that he is the power and source of all of the divine powers, which are also called the children of Elohim. These are the angels, which are the intermediary divine powers. Um, how did they put that there? Imbued with individual spiritual radiance. Okay, fine. Um, that, that they come about from something to nothing. Okay, so l- let me explain what this means. Can I break your window? Yeah. From sitting over here? No. Really? Why not? Well, yeah, I could throw something. Yeah. And if I throw something, did I break the window? Yes. I did, didn't I? But I never touched the window. But it was the power of the thing that you threw. Okay. Now. So now. If, if, now, God can do something I can't do. Which is God can create ex nihilo, right? So God could also break your window by throwing a rock at it. The difference is, God doesn't need to have a pre-existent rock. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Okay. But would you say that if God were to just create a rock flying at your window and then the rock broke the window, would you say the rock broke your window or God broke your window? Well, our approach, it depends how connected to God you are. That's right. It's a matter of perspective how you would answer that question, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. Let's just say, theoretically, that um, God used his power to create a being and then he uses that being to do other stuff. So then, I don't know, who's really doing it? Is it God or that other being? God through the being. Right. So that other being, right? I mean, God created another being with power, but that other being's power is just the fact that God created that being with power. So it's really some sense just God's power, right? So that other being is just a, an intermediary, a messenger for God's power. Yeah. Okay. So... That's what angels are. <laughs> what are people? We're not going to talk about people yet. Uh, okay. So, do you know why in some countries there's a lot of, um, of one resource and not a lot of another resource? Like some countries produce a lot of... Oil. Gas. Yeah, some countries have like a lot of gas. Some countries have a lot of... Um, vegetation. Some places are just barren. Some places produce a lot of wisdom. Some places have innovation. Some places have just a lot of people. You ever wonder why that is? Yes. You know what the answer is? What? Depends on the governing angel. Yeah. There's different governing angels. Every angel is in charge of a certain section of earth. And some angels are really good at... Yeah, so some angels are really good at managing the whole, you know, uh, ecology thing and getting, you know, vibrant life going on. What are the 
Oh, so so what happens when those angels fight with each other? Yeah. The resources getting like redistributed. Mm-hmm. Like if one angel is able to subjugate another angel, right? But it, then it's God fighting with himself. No, God's not fighting with himself. But why? Why would he do, why, why did he do that? So then what's happening? Wait, wait, wait. We're not there yet. Okay. okay. So there are 70 nations of the world, right? Yeah. No, they're not. There's much more than 70 nations of the world. They originated from 70 So why do we still say there's 70 nations? Because there's 70 angels. There are 70 angels. What? 70 aspects to the Torah? No, no. That might be a different idea that's related. There are 70 angels. There are 70 angels. And those angels, right, have different qualities, different temperaments, different capacities. They're not all the same. And they all are vying control for particular spots on earth. And everything on their spot is under their influence. There's one place there's an exception to this rule. Where's the one place there's an exception to this rule? Here, Eretz Yisrael. And Eretz Yisrael is in exile, then things get messed up. But yeah, when it's, a, say, right, right. That, that, that's, in other words, from a spiritual point of view, what exile is when these angels start trying to take over a spot that really they're not supposed to be touching. But okay. So oh, these these angels. That, so it's their fault. That explains this floor. Okay, so now, let us... <laughs> so the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe said that every major power has an angel. But he's not sure about once you start going down. Like, like you know, the United States clearly has an angel. Yeah. I mean, we're inclined to say that that's the same angel that used to govern Rome. But, oh, really? you know, really? we're inclined to say that. That's, you know, the inclination. I don't know what the... I don't know... Um, you know. Greek, Greek, it's, a, it's a messy thing. I don't know. Okay. Um, the, um, the, the, you know, Russia clearly has an angel. France hadn't, you know, that's certainly from, you know, a good part of history France. had it. Yeah. France. <laughs> Have you heard of, I've been saying, France <laughs> no, no, is a major power. No, no. France. Yeah. But Luxembourg probably doesn't have its own angel. <laughs> If you think about this, by the way, this makes a kind of sense, right? Because, like, geopolitically, things are kind of arranged in kind of spheres of influence. And Okay, so there's 70 of them. And by the way, they're not all equally powerful or whatever. Yeah. Um, the Rebbe one time during, I believe it was the first Lebanon War. Um, but I could be mistaken. It might have been during the Yom Kippur War. I don't remember which one. Oh, no, no, it was the Yom Kippur War. Sorry, it was the Yom Kippur War. So the Rebbe said something similar by the, by the, the first Lebanese, Lebanon War. But during the Yom Kippur War, the Rebbe said um, that the Israelis should push very, very hard and very, very fast. And ultimately, they'll save more Jewish lives and will the lives of the non-Jews as well, mm-hmm. the, the Syrians. And people wrote to the Rebbe afterwards that were very kind of... They, they weren't... You know, it's nice when you're all humanitarian, but like it, it is true that Syria did just you know, tried to, like, wipe all the Jews living in Israel off the face of the earth. Like, why are you showing concern for, you know, how many Syrians are? Mm. Um, especially since we generally actually have a principle in halacha that one is not supposed to show compassion in war. There's a whole discussion about this, but whatever. Um, anyway. I'm sorry. There is this... 
Who, where does that come from? I'm sorry. That you're not supposed to show compassion yeah, anymore? Yeah. It's a lacha. It's a lacha. Yeah. By the way, um, just on a completely different but related note, um, if you are a compassionate person who fights wars, the most compassionate thing you can do is actually to fight the war as fast and as hard as you can and finish quickly and decisively. Um, protracted wars end up costing much more suffering. Um, and I forget which, which American general said it, but, but war is hell. Yeah. And you want to get it over done, you know, as quickly as possible and clearly as possible. Yeah. But anyway, so but and and that's on the straightforward. That's what the rebel was saying. But people were very offended. It's like you know, imagine somebody would write, you know, would say like you know about the Nazis or right now. You know, we want to finish the war as quickly as possible, right, so that fewer Nazis die. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, I don't really care about the Nazis right now. It's like not my consideration. Yeah. <laughs> so the the rebbe said that um, every nation has their angel, and he wasn't. He was talking to the angel. Oh, wow. That you really should not, you should get your armies to stand down because it's in your interest to lose this war quickly Whoa. because if you lose it protractedly, you're going to end up suffering more. Whoa. So don't, don't drag this war out, yes. You know, Sadiq can sometimes talk to people, other, or beings other than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. So they never said that. But then God has <laughs> each angel to each territory. Yeah, yeah. But they have, they're, they're, they're living beings with their own agency and their own intentions and their own desires and they, they want stuff. And mm. They would like more, mm-hmm. as most living beings want more. So do they adhere to the same free will, free choice? No, they don't have the same kind of free will. I'm not going to oh, go into okay, that right okay. now as people. I'm, I don't really want to go into that. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Okay. Um, yeah, so God. Wow. So they, they have power, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But their power isn't theirs. Their power is God's, right? Right. So God creates these other beings of power and then those beings of power what actually influences the world. And God is influencing it through them. And thus, God is called the God of gods. Very good. Vizehu. Let's keep reading. Shenikra elokeha elokim. This is why they're called the God of gods. And even the pagans, the kind of the, the quintessential Gentile in Judaism is a pagan. Calls Hashem the God of gods. So, brief rundown of your mythologies. All mythologies have a bunch of different gods, and those gods have different territories, both geographically speaking, as well as different um, aspects of life, right? Um, So like, for instance, um, Athens, right, is, you know, under the purview of Athena, but then there's also certain, like, areas of life that are under the purview of Athena, right? That's how all these different mythologies, Greek mythology and and all the different you know, mythologies whether, you know, in, in the world have that kind of structure to them. Where did the gods come from in those mythologies? They come from the Titans. That's right. In Greek mythology, they come from the Titans. Now, the Titans are just older gods who had younger gods that then usurped them. So then where did the Titans come from? Well, you eventually get to there's some like source of everything, right? But that source of everything is like, you know, we don't talk about that. Right. So 
Now, in the pagan world, it's like, oh, you have your gods, I have my gods, sometimes our gods fighting. You know, the whole idea of like um, empire was, was very pagan. So, for instance, the Babylonian version of empire was our god can defeat all of your gods. Um, the, to take another extreme, the, uh, Persia, the, 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 the Roman idea of the Roman idea and the, the Greco-Roman idea of empire was our gods can all be one happy family. Wait, of course. And you know the saying, like, and all the nations will come to know God? It's the same, like all the angels will kind of agree to just have that one power instead of their own. Right. In other words, right. In other words, in, in other words, the messianic era doesn't involve a transformation about human beings as human beings. It involves transformation yeah. of the angels, right? Now, these angels are not holy, by the way. These angels that we're talking about here, clearly, because if they were, they'd be devoted to God. Um, right. These angels are known as the Klippus Noga, by the way. Oh, wow. That's why it's still I'm not God. That's right. But when it's when you say Elokim, it's still the angel. It's he's still the God of all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's what this idea is. Okay, so really what you have to realize is that it's really, you know, depending on how you look, if you look at these angels, they're powerful beings, but really they don't have their own power, right? They're, They're being created and empowered by God. And so ultimately, in one sense, they're just doing his bidding. Whereas the prophet says, um, would, would the, would the, would the acts be praised in the presence of the of the of the of the wood chopper, right? and the axe is the one chopping the wood, right? Mm-hmm. Not really. The axe doesn't do anything on its own, right? It's a wood chopper, right? Yeah. So th- the thing is, the difference between the pagans and the Jews is that the pagans think that okay, now these beings exist and they have their power, and like now we want to navigate our relationship with these beings to get you know what's in it for us to make things work as best as possible, right? Where the truth is that even though that might be the experience that these these B'nai Elohim have and how they exist, but ultimately really they're just being created and empowered by God. And so really it's just like an ax and like they don't really are responsible for anything. And God's just playing out the whole thing himself for whatever reasons he has. And so there's no reason to really pay much attention to these beings. You might as well just worship God directly. But when you're worshiping God, you're worshiping God as he makes himself known in God as he is, the doer, the the power that creates everything, including these B'nai Elohim. V'hainu, end of the next paragraph, end of 51. Gam ken shem anin. This is also associated with the name Adnai. So in Hasidus, sometimes the names Adnai and Elohim are differentiated and sometimes they're grouped together. They're generally speaking the same idea or similar enough that they're grouped. Some places they're differentiated. What does Adnai mean? He is known as the master, the owner, the authority over everything. God who is master of everything. Great is our master, and of abundant power. In other words, how is God's authority known? Because who makes everything happen? Who does he, who, who, who is he answerable to? No one. no one. So it's all under his authority. That's right. And everybody does things based on him. him. 
שזהו בעניין הבייס באלוקים, that's the second day, לושן שפק, כמו שכוסף שפק כל ארץ, ובכן הסררה ומלכוס את האידיאה of, 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 סוברנטי and authority, כמו נוסי אלוקים אתה, or like it says, you are a prince of אלוקים, it says about אברהם that he has a kind of authority. אוקיי. אורייט. והכל אחד, all this is really talking about one general idea, משום דוכינס מלכוס ובכינס האחרונת אסטר ספירס דאצילס, because מלכוס is the last of the ten ספירס. הוא המוקר הראשון לסבוס כל העולמס וברורים האנליש, and it is the original source to bring into being all of the world and all of the creations, something from nothing. So what does that mean? What is he saying here? He's saying, מלכוס is the last of the ספירס. Why is מלכוס the last of the ספירס? Or the opposite. What? Malchus, how Malchus relates. Does he contain all the other ones? It has the least amount of... What does it say in the text? It says because it's the, the um, creation, the lowest aspect. It's the source that creates everything else, right? In other words, the stuff he does and the stuff he has authority over, right? Mm-hmm. So if Atsilus is the place where God is known, Malchus ends it. Malchus puts the brakes on Atsilus by definition because once God becomes known, once God makes himself known as a doer, what follows from that is not God, it's the things he, did. The, things he does, the creations, the worlds that he makes, the things he has authority over. And, and every other sphera is a different way in which God makes himself known, but that does not put the brakes on Atzil. God can be known in this way, then he can be known in this way, then he can be known in this way, then he can be known in this way, but then you get to God and God is known as a doer and as an authority figure, boom, you end up with something that isn't God as a result after that. Because there has to be what he is doing, which isn't him. What is he making? What is he creating? What does he have authority over? But that's where we see where his authority is. Because it's that's right. As we say in Ashrei, Malchuscha, your Malchus, Malchus Kolelomim, is the Malchus of all the worlds. And it's all the worlds, what is really the source of their creation, the base of the creation, that God is known as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as an authority figure, as a doer of things. And your authority extends to every generation. So by way of an analogy, Malchusa Da'ara, the Kingship on earth. So he's talking about human kingship. So before we go forward, we need to think of a human king. So we all have an analogy of a human king. Think clearly of a human king. Give me an example of a human king who really exemplifies this well. Anyone have an example? I don't care. Just wait. If we're using an example, we should at least know what we're talking about. No, there's the difference. The difference between... The difference between Kabbalistic terms is we just keep them as proper nouns and we don't know anything about them, but one analogies, the analogies are things in our world we want to have a sense of, right? So can someone give me an analogy Charles? of a king? Nah, it's not enough of a king. Nah, he's not a good king. He's a messy king. He gives together. What? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh, we, um, I don't know, do we really have enough? We just know Pharaoh is like the, the, the antagonist to Moshe, really. And you really like have a good... Pharaoh? Nah. nah. I mean, it's got like, it's, we want like a good, like nice example of the idea of kingship. 
Like really, really good king. The thing is, I'm not saying the problem. The problem with David. The problem with David is that all the stories of David are about like how like complicated it ends up being for him. Shlomo is good. Shlomo is good. Shaul, we could do Shaul. Okay, my my issue with those ones is: Do you have a good sense of them? Do you have a good sense of like their 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 kingship, their sovereignty, their reigning? Because again, the problem here is we tend to have stories about when stuff goes right. We don't like have a. We didn't actually. Right. Okay. See the problem. Yeah. So I'm gonna pick one, which I think is is good because it it really captures the the it's re- it really is kingship, um, the analogy well, and it's recent. As recent, I think, as we can get. We're going to use the Tsar of Imperial Russia. But even then... One second. One second. No, no, no. Stalin's not going to... Okay. Okay. So it says like Shemidazu Enarak Hispashus Khutsenis Matsumuse Shemispashit Mahusi Mushatal Amri. That this idea of the kingship, now we're gonna use the analogy of the Tsar, right? The Tsar of Imperial Russia, his trait of Malchus, his being of king, is extending a very external aspect of from himself that extends over his kingship, over it extends his kingship and authority over his people. What does that mean? So, let us imagine for a moment that you are the Chinese. Actually, no, let's make it more concrete. You are the Japanese. This is, it is actually more concrete. You'll see why in a second. (laughs) You are the Japanese. And you believe that certain resources on the eastern part of the Asian um, continent should be yours for the taking. Now you have to ask yourself a question. Are these resources, these places, these ports, these people, these trees, right, etc. All these things, are they, are they already spoken for? Yeah. Well, and if they are spoken for, are you willing to you know, confront, you know, go to war over that. So, and you decide that, you know, you don't really think that they're spoken for or you don't, right, or you don't respect the fact that there's someone claims they're spoken you don't respect that. And you decide you're going to take them. But then there's a man who lives far, far, far away on the European side of the Ural Mountains. And these resources are his. And because they're his, from villages across the continent, men are ripped away from their families and sent to this faraway place to die so that that man on the European side of the Ural Mountains doesn't lose his claim on those resources. That's like a pretty big event, right? Okay, now, that man, what is he doing day to day? What is he doing day to day? Works hard. Well, if he's if he is 
really good at this whole king thing. He is attending state dinners and going to the ballet, um, educating his son, you know, arranging marriages for his relative to secure alliances. Why, why, why is he doing all that? Because he doesn't have to actually be involved in any of this. This is all being done on his behalf and in his name. It doesn't actually require him, does it? In fact, the same, what if, what if the czar was like two years old? Would that change any of that dynamic? No. It's still being all done in his name on his behalf, right? It doesn't require him. What is it that extends, right? What extends that, that, that notion of his malchus, his memshala, his authority, his reign, right? It's not him, the person, the human being. There's, there's something about his, these things are, are, are his. Kind of a sense of like ownership, but not exactly the same. And so they're under his protection. Taking them means taking, means fighting, going against him, right? But all this is done in his name, on his behalf, right? It doesn't actually have to like be involved and engage and do anything. You know what the opposite of a king is? The opposite of a king is a prime minister or a president. Oh, yeah. Because what is a president or prime minister for? What? They need to get things done, right? And because it's a complicated bureaucracy, you need somebody at the top to manage it, right? Mm-hmm. You know what a really good king does? Nothing. Nothing. He appoints a prime minister. That's good <laughs> because does he need to run things? Mm-hmm. They're being run. That's right. In his name, by his name, right? And, and now when someone comes to one of these villages and says, this is what you got to do, why do you have to do it? Because of that guy, you know, thousands of miles away who doesn't even know the name of the village, doesn't care about that village necessarily. But that village is under his jurisdiction. It's, un- it's, it's his village. It's his authority. It belongs to him, right? And if his authority is really seen as legitimate, what's the worst crime that those villagers could do in their own minds? What's worse than stealing? Worse than murder? Worse than anything you could do. Rebelling against him. Because you are his. That's a crime against your very soul. And at the same time... Yeah. And if, and if the government is doing bad things... This is what I'm going to use the Zara's If the government is doing bad things, what do you do? If you have a king. You complain to the king. You hope the king will intervene the king will intercede because it's after all being done in the king's name. Do you know when, this, and this is why I'm using this name, do you know when the Tsar of Russia stopped really being a king? There was an incident called Bloody Sunday. I'm over-dramatizing, but it makes the point very clear. Bloody Sunday was, the government was doing a lot of stuff and um, the people didn't like it. And the people really, the, the people broadly speaking thought of the king as the king. So what did they do? They marched to the Winter Palace outside the capital to go petition the king that he should, you know, do something because the government, and the assumption, of course, being is that the king, the king doesn't know what's happening in his name because if he knew what's happening in his name, he wouldn't allow such a thing. 
and um, the, the czar actually was a very weak, frightened man, and so he got scared, and he told the soldiers not to let them in, and a bit of a riot ensued, and the soldiers shot some of these people, and that's why it's known as Bloody Sunday. And at that point, this sense that... That... No, not the king is doing, that the king is actually our king went away. Yeah. He's killing his own people. He doesn't want to hear from his own people. King Kwok's always been killing his own people. Like, me, like, it's not like, 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 at least starts always. It's never been like the case where um, the interests of the people or the peasants. No, 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 no. So, so, so that, that is the thing. The, 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 the idea of a king is different. The idea of a king. Is, is different than the idea of a tyrant. I mean, the ancient Greeks talked about this. A king, a king's rule, it's his. Yeah. But it's not, it's not him using the people for his own ends. It's they're his people. Mm-hmm. So if they're his people, then what does he care about? I mean, if you have a bunch of sheep, do you go around like abusing your sheep? No. Why not? Because they're yours, <laughs> right? That makes sense? Yeah, but like in, in Sarah's fashion. So, so now what, what happens if the king is seen by the people as in conflict with the people? Then do they see him as the king anymore? No. No. But here's the thing. This is all a kind of sense that has to be exuded onto the people and onto the neighboring countries. It doesn't actually revolve anything with the actual human being who is the king, Right. He can be like doing off his own stuff. Like it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. As long as he doesn't do anything that contradicts that impression. In other words, uh, kingship has a certain kind of mythological quality to it. It's, it's, uh, I'm not going to say this. It's a, there's an element of social construct. It's not, it's, it's that he exudes something or something is exuded in his name that gives that people that kind of sense. And we're saying that idea. So then, so now he's saying something, some, you know, he's saying, it's not just like, well, that's the end because, you know, now it's involving them. How much of the actual person who is the czar has to be really involved? None. None. As long as, like, if you just, like, if the king just shuts up and doesn't do anything, but that's been, yeah. if the king shuts up and doesn't do anything, as long as he has the right people running the show, he can stay king forever. Mm-hmm. But that's been the 